Let's go to Luke 2. Starting with verse 8, it says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly, everybody say suddenly. Suddenly, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth. Say on earth, on earth. and on earth peace. Goodwill toward men. For the next several moments tonight, I want to talk to you about this topic of peace on earth. You may be seated. The angel brought tidings of peace on the earth, something that had not been experienced since the fall of man. When you read through your Bible, you see the people of God experienced war repeatedly. All around them surrounded war. Matter of fact, they possessed a land through war. Peace was something fleeting. This, this world that we live in seems to be following a natural regression of fallen man to descend further and further into chaos. There's turmoil in political systems of this world. There's economic instability. Everybody say amen. amen. It abounds. And we hear of wars and rumors of war. But family, I, I remind you that the Bible said that it would be like that. That it, this is simply just to remind us that we are living in the last of the last days. With everything that surrounds us, this idea of peace seems to be simply that, an idea, but not a reality. Peace seems to be this elusive, evasive fantasy that always escapes our grasp. Jesus warned us in John 16, that in this world we would have tribulation. But he said, but take comfort in that same verse, though, because he gives us within that same context. He says that in him, though, we can have peace. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but in me, you can have peace. When you're living in this world, you will have tribulation, but when you're in him, amen. When you're in him, when you've been baptized into him and the Holy Ghost lives in you, and you mind the things of the spirit and not the things of this world, you can have peace when there's tribulation around you. There's not a contradiction in this verse. It's a comparison of two conditions contingent upon you and me and where we try to locate peace. If you try to find peace in this world, it'll flee. But if you try to find peace in him, it'll, it'll remain. So I pause it tonight for your consideration that peace does not have to be an unattainable condition. It just matters where you try to find it. If you're searching for peace in this world or from this world, you will not find it. But at the very best, it will be short-lived. If you're searching for peace in him, it is guaranteed you can have peace. In the creation account in Genesis, 
It says that the earth was without form. It was void. It was lacking order. And it was dark and full of chaos. Then it says the spirit moved in that world and it begins to do a work. And within the first 10 or so verses, suddenly, with a move of a Holy Ghost, there's order and tranquility. What is it that brought peace into chaos? It was boundaries. The first three creative works the Spirit does all involve division, separation, and boundaries of some sort. If your life is chaotic and it lacks peace, the first thing you need is a move of the Holy Ghost. And then, I tell you, the next thing that you need after you've had a move of the Holy Ghost is to implement boundaries. You need to create some distance and some separation between you and the things that bring chaos. The world around us is chaotic. But how many of you know that still to this day he is able to bring order where there's chaos? Isaiah 9 and 6, if you would. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. That Prince of Peace in Hebrew is Sar Shalom. It indicates that the mighty God is going to be this benevolent ruler that brings eternal peace through the establishment of his government. We will not have peace in this world until he reigns. Read the book of Revelation. When, when Satan is bound for a thousand years and Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, we have a thousand years of peace. Then he's loosed for a season and then ultimately cast into the lake of fire. And then there's this new Jerusalem that comes down from above. Amen. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. And then there's peace forever. Because I posit for your consideration, where he reigns, there's peace. Verse 7. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So let me tell you what that means, that in our lives, there is supposed to be a continual increase of both his government and peace. Where there's an increase of his government, there is an increase of peace. So if you want more peace, you've got to give him more reign. When Isaiah saw this throne, there's only one. And there's only one that can sit upon that throne at one time. So what happens is you and I try to sit on the throne ourselves and try to reign and we try to rule and that brings chaos. So what we have to do is abdicate that throne, say, Lord, I release you to sit on the throne of my life. I'm going to submit myself to your rule and to your reign and to your, to your word. If you struggle to have peace, it might be because you need to remove yourself from the throne. I'm afraid that too often... We want him to be our savior, but we're not interested in him being Lord. 
We want him to save us from sin, but we don't want him to bring us out of darkness. We want him to save us, but we don't want to let him tell us what to do. Mm. He's supposed to be both Lord and Christ. I say again, where there is an increase of his government, there is an increase of peace. Listen to what Psalm 119, 165 says. It says, great peace, great peace have they that love thy law. It says not just, this is, let me, let me put it to you in, in my, my human terms here. It's not just the law. It, this is what it says. Great peace have they that love your reign. Great peace have they that love where you rule. Great peace have they that love when you're in charge and when you call the shots. Great peace have they that love your instruction and love your correction. That's when you have great peace. Is when it doesn't matter what he says, you say, yes, Lord, and I love it. Despise not the correction of the Lord, for whom he loveth, he chasteneth. Thank you, Lord, for correcting me. Thank you, Lord, for that rod of correction that brings me into the path of righteousness and out of darkness. Thank you, Lord. How many of you want peace to increase in your life? How many of you want great peace? Fall in love with the word. Amen. But what if I were to tell you that there's something that's available to you that's even better than great peace? Hmm. Let me talk to you about Jerusalem. Jerusalem geographically is centered around a mountain. The city as we know it today was actually at one point in time two cities. On the Temple Mount, side of Mount Moriah, where Abraham and Isaac ascended, prepared to offer sacrifice unto the Lord. When Isaac realizes, hey, Dad, we've got wood. We've got stuff to make fire. But where's the sacrifice? And you all know what Abraham said. He said, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. So in Hebrew, that word is yireh. Or you've heard it probably gyra in our text and vernacular. But there's no J sound in Hebrew, so let me just give you a quick Hebrew lesson. There's no J in Hebrew. It's yireh. It means he will. This is literally what it means. It doesn't mean he'll provide. It means he will see to it. So when he makes a promise, he's going to see to it that it happens. His word won't return void. It won't return to him void. So, so here's this promise. And this ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And so this first of these ancient cities on that side of the mountain is Yireh. On the other side of the same mountain, referred to as Mount Zion, is another city. And Genesis 14 introduces us to this unique king who's not only a king, but he's also a priest. And you know his name is Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. In 14 and 18 of Genesis, we are informed that he's actually the king of a city called Salem. Or in Hebrew, shalom, peace. So when it says he's king of peace, he's the king of a city called peace. So peace on one side of the mountain, he'll see to it on the other side. So this would be, uh, if you would, Brother Gary, could you put that up there in Hebrew for me? This is how you would write Yerushalayim in Hebrew. But if you have Yireh and Shalom, you would think that you could just say Yireh Shalom. Because that's literally the blending of these two. These two cities have merged together as one. So why Yerushalayim? Why? Well, the I, let me, I'll go over here. I forget most of y'all don't read Hebrew. So this last two letters, this, uh, this apostrophe looking thing, 
And this house-looking thing over here, that's a yod and a mem sofit. A y and an m. It makes a word plural. It's like adding an s in English. So it says there's two Jerusalems. But it would be grammatically correct to say Eru Shalom. That would have been correct. But ancient rabbis changed the spelling of the city because there's now two yods, one at the beginning and one at the end. And it was to serve them as a reminder that as wonderful and as beautiful as the city of Jerusalem is, there's another one that's coming down. Revelation 21 tells us that John sees this new heaven and a new earth. And he sees this holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, where God himself is the temple and his glory is the light of it. God is going to reign on this earth and there will be peace. And because where he reigns, say it with me, there's peace. Where he reigns, there's Where he reigns, there's Okay, good. We have an understanding. This shalom in Hebrew is, is kind of like aloha in Hawaiian. It serves as hello, goodbye, it's just a greeting. But it really what you're making is a declaration of peace for that person. I want you to come in peace, go in peace, have peace, be in peace, okay? But it can also be said in another form. Shalom, shalom. Which can mean peace multiplied or perfect peace. Or the kind of peace that I believe Paul writes about in the fourth chapter of Philippians, verse 7, where he calls it the peace of God that passeth understanding. Shalom, shalom. It's peace that transcends or exceeds our understanding. Or simply this, it's beyond our ability to even understand it. It's peace that transcends your circumstance. It's this kind of peace that's internal not external. It's peace that's not conditional. It's not circumstantial. It's peace that transcends the wind and the waves that Peter stepped out of a boat into. When Peter walks on this water, I'll remind you, it's in a storm, not after a storm. While it rages, he steps out of this boat and walks on water. Peter has peace in the midst of a storm. He has shalom, shalom. Peace does not deny the situation, but it's peace that defies the situation. Mm. Isaiah 26 and 3 says this, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Peter trusted in the Lord. When the Lord said, Come, he stepped out. He had shalom, shalom. You want shalom, shalom? Let him reign. Now, if you would, I've got a word directly for someone here tonight. And this is what the Lord told me. He said, you've tried all kinds of things. You've turned to a number of remedies and searched for peace, only to find that any peace that you're able to obtain is partial and not lasting. It's momentary and fleeting. You're tormented by the constant turmoil and unrest, and you feel weighed down. But this is what Isaiah said. He said, the government should be upon his shoulder, not yours. You can't have peace trying to bear the weight of something that he's supposed to bear, and you're not. 
So when you try to bear the government upon your shoulders, you're going to feel weighted down. Peter said, cast all of your cares upon him. Why don't you cast the government upon him also? What he's meant to bear will crush us under its weight. So stop trying to govern. People have suggested prayer to you, but you've viewed this as a cop-out and not a solution. People suggested and you've thought or even said that I've tried that before and it didn't work. Well, I want to be clear to you. He didn't say complain about it. He said pray about it. He said, bring it to me, cast it upon me, and I will give you shalom, shalom. Stop trying to work it out, figure it out, do it all on your own. I will make peace for you. He said, even if the wind and waves of your situation don't cease, trust me that I've got it under control. When the thoughts of doubt and discouragement come, when chaos tries to bring you back down beneath his level of peace, bring those thoughts into captivity and make them obey him. You can have peace despite your circumstances. You can have peace despite what's going on in your life. You can have the perfect peace of God that passes all understanding. Stand with me if you would. If your peace comes from nothing down here, then nothing down here can take it. But if your peace comes from him, hmm, amen, praise God. Let your peace come from him. You want his perfect peace? Let him sit upon the throne. You want his perfect peace? Let him govern. Father, we lift our hands and surrender unto you. Knowing full well, Lord, that we've tried to reign and we've tried to rule on our own. We've tried to govern. We've tried to call the shots. But, Lord, here and now, we surrender the throne to you. We surrender to your reign. We surrender to your rule. And we call upon the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask you to now be the Prince of Peace in our life. In Jesus' name, grant us the peace of God that passes understanding. God, be the governor in our lives. Be the King of kings and be the Lord of lords. We don't want you to just save us. We want you to govern us, Lord. In Jesus' name, why don't you clap your hands unto the Lord? Thank you, Brother Jonathan, for that wonderful word. I, I don't know about you, but life for us has just been pure chaos lately. And it's a, it's a comfort to know that God is our peace yes, on earth. I, uh, sometimes it's hard to kind of, you, you can say it, but it's hard to really, really buy into this idea that there is such thing as complete peace that God has promised us. And that no matter what it seems like we're facing, no matter how insurmountable those obstacles may be, God is there, and he's our peace. And Brother Jonathan, uh, combined with that Hebrew, I mean, that's, that's powerful. So thank you so much, Brother Jonathan. I, uh, I'm going to let you stretch your legs right now. I promise I'll let you sit down in two minutes. Um, the other day I was doing what most Americans do these days. I was sitting on the couch looking at my phone, scrolling on Twitter, and I, I came across a story that pulled at my heart. I, um, it was the story of a little boy, maybe one or two years old. His name's Logan, and he lives in New Jersey. 
And this story about Logan went viral online because of a video that a New Jersey optometrist posted about him. You see, Logan, like me, can't see very well. And so he'd lived the first months, his first months on Earth with blurry vision, unable to make out the details of the world around him. The features on Mama's face, the birds in the sky, the trees and the flowers in the fields, Logan could not see them. But this video didn't go viral because of all the things Logan couldn't see. It went viral because it captured the first moment that Logan could see. And so he walked into that optometrist's office that day to get his new glasses that had just come in. And I think we have that moment for you here on the screens. I know, I know, I know. Okay, okay, okay. There you go. I got emotional the first time I saw that video, uh, and, and I still do, because it, if I think, if there's one word that completely captures Logan's reaction, it's pure, unadulterated joy. To be effectively blind in one moment, and then to be able to see, to feel bound in one moment, and then to be free, that's our salvation story. Exactly. To feel lost in one moment, and then to be found. You know, there's only one emotion that I think adequately describes those situations, and that's what Logan showed us is pure joy. Uh, it, it's Christmas time. It's the season when we sing joy to the world, when we glorify the one who gives us joy. And so for just a couple of minutes, I'd like to speak on a simple thought. My joy, my salvation. My joy, my salvation. Feel free to have a seat again. I think you've stretched enough. I, uh, I, I do like this tag-teaming deal, the thing I don't like is the bar has been set so high by the prior three uh, men in our church who have done outstanding jobs, but it's an honor to, 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 to play the, I guess what they call the anchor leg, if I, if I have my terminology correctly. Um, over the past few days, I began to study the, the role that joy has in the Bible. I first looked at how many times it's used in the Bible. It, you can find it 155 times. And as you can imagine, a good number of those times are in Psalms, where David's writing songs and prayers where he talks about joy. Another good portion of, of these instances is in Paul's writings in the New Testament to various churches where he's speaking about joy. But I, I began to look for specific examples of joy in practice. And I noticed a trend in the Old Testament, and that trend is this. Joy was part of the song of salvation that the children of Israel sang when they were in trouble and God made a way to save them. Joy was a part of the song of salvation that the children of Israel sang when they were in trouble and God made a way to save them. Let me give you just a few examples. The very first reference to joy in the Bible was in 1 Samuel chapter 18. When we get to that chapter, David has just performed what people thought was impossible. He's killed Goliath. And after that, the Bible says Saul honored David. He, pl he placed him at the head of the Israelite army. 
And in that capacity, David led that army and slaughtered the Philistines and saved the children of Israel. And so when we get to verses 6 and 7 of 1 Samuel chapter 18, the Bible tells us that when David returned, the women of Israel began to sing and dance with joy. They said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. It was a song of salvation. God has delivered us. And they sang that song, the Bible says, with joy. The same story, if you fast forward to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the children of Israel surrounded by the Ammonites, the Moabites, and King Jehoshaphat cries out to God in verse 12. He says, we have no might against this great company, God, that comes against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God responds with that famous promise in verse 15. He says, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And what follows is one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. God turned Israel's enemies on each other so that they destroyed each other without the children of Israel having to lift a finger. And after that, Bible, the, after that battle, the Bible says in verse 27 that they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at the front to go again to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. In verse 28, it says, they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and trumpets into the house of the Lord. Again, this was a song of salvation. God has delivered us, and they sang that song with joy. One final example stick out to me. This is from the book of Esther, and we, you know, we know the story of Esther, who was chosen for such a time as this to save the children of Israel from destruction at the hands of Haman. We know that story principally because of her courage. But we don't often read the end, the very end of the book of Esther, which describes how King Ahasuerus later treated the children of Israel. Esther chapter 8 verse 11 says, The king authorized Mordecai, Esther's uncle, to write a king's decree that gave the children of Israel the right to stand for their life and to destroy anyone who would threaten them. It was a miraculous gift by decree of protection and authority that would save the Israelites from destruction. And the last two verses in chapter 8, stick with me on this point. Verse 16 says the Jews had light and gladness and joy. In verse 17, it says in every province, in every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree went, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast, I love this part, and a good day. They had joy. It doesn't say expressly what they sang, if they sang, but I have to think that the same songs of salvation that the Israelites sang when God delivered them from the Philistines, from the Ammonites, from the Moabites, they sang the same songs of salvation here. God delivered us, and they sang that with joy in their hearts. And so you see the sequence of events in the Old Testament, a time of need, God's miraculous deliverance, and then a song of salvation sung with joy. And it's a story, it's a timeline where joy always comes in at the very end after God has done the miraculous. So when I turn to the New Testament, I guess I expected to see the same kind of sequence. Someone's in trouble, God intervenes, and then they sing a song of salvation with joy afterward. But the very first example of joy in the New Testament is not about joy coming in in the bottom of the ninth. It's a story, it's a story about joy from the very beginning to the very end. It's a story about the joy of our salvation, who is himself 
the Alpha and Omega. And I guess for the rest of a short time here, I want to impress on you tonight the numerous ways in which joy touches every part of the story of Jesus Christ. And I want to start at the very beginning with the immaculate conception of Jesus Christ in Mary's womb. The book of Luke begins by telling us that Elizabeth, Mary's friend, has conceived at the same time. She's carrying John the Baptist. She and Mary, of course, are friends. And so Mary goes to visit Elizabeth at her house. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, that when Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And she said a few verses down in verse 44, as soon as I heard your voice in my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. In other words, Jesus Christ wasn't even born yet, and he was already causing people to leap for joy. I, man. I, I'd read that story so many times and just never, I got the leaped part, but I didn't get the why part. Yeah. For joy. How, how, how could Elizabeth know what that baby was thinking if it wasn't the Holy Spirit working through her and speaking through her, and the fact that Man, Jesus Christ as a baby had <laughs> immense, immense power um, to instill joy in others. A few months later after that, there are shepherds tending to their flocks at night. An angel appears above them, scares them half to death. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The angel said, don't be afraid because I'm here with a message of joy. Salvation has come to earth and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus would go on to perform miracles. He'd go on to commission apostles to speak the gospel and to spread the gospel. If you look at Luke chapter 10, he talks about 70 disciples with, that he commissioned, he sent out. And in verse 17, they come back to Jesus and they're excited the Bible says they return to him with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. The ministry of the gospel, the casting out of devils, that's the stuff of joy. And when Jesus was teaching publicans and Pharisees, he tried to explain to them how significant it is when even one sinner repents. He spoke in Luke chapter 15 about the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd will leave the other 99 just to find the one, and he'll rejoice when he finds it. In the same passage, he talks about the parable of the lost coin. The woman who loses it will sweep and search and light a candle and look everywhere until she finds it, and she'll rejoice when she finds it. And in Luke 15.10, he says it's the same thing when a sinner repents. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Joy in the presence of the angels of God. That joy surrounding Jesus Christ didn't stop with his death, didn't stop with his burial. In Matthew chapter 28, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go down on the third day to the tomb where Jesus is buried. And there's an earthquake. An angel rolls the stone away from the door. They have the same reaction the shepherds had the night Jesus was born. They're terrified. But the angel says, fear not. This is typically how angels start their conversations. You're going to be all right. The angel here says, fear not. Go and spread the word that Jesus is alive. And verse 8 says, they ran from the tomb with fear and great joy. With fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word. You know, Jesus ministers on earth for a little while more. 
He gathers his disciples in Luke chapter 24, shortly before he ascends into heaven. He blesses them with some final words, and then he's received up into heaven. But still, there's joy. If you look at verse 52 of Luke chapter 24, it says that they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. One more example. Jesus Christ is going to return for us one day. And he talked about this in John chapter 16. He's talking to his disciples about his second coming, and he says, I've got to go away for a little while. But verse 22 contains his promise to us. He says, I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy shall no man take from you. Your joy shall no man take from you in that final day. You might say, Brother Ben, why, why are we just going through all these scriptures about joy? My point is a simple one. It's that we can't teach and preach salvation under the name of Jesus Christ without talking about joy. Our salvation story is a joy story. Joy was there when Christ was in the womb. Joy was there when he was born. Joy was there when his disciples were casting out devils. Joy was there when he was resurrected from the dead. Joy was there when he ascended up into heaven. And joy will be there when he comes back for his church. So when I talk about my joy, I'm talking about my salvation. When I'm talking about my salvation, I'm talking about my joy. I, I can't talk about one without talking about the other. My joy, my salvation, doesn't matter what you call it because I've got both in Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me tonight? The title of this series is The True Meaning of Christmas. And for as long as I can remember, I've heard it said that Jesus is the true meaning of Christmas. And that's certainly true. But when we celebrate his birth, we're not celebrating just the fact that Jesus Christ was born. We're celebrating the fact that when Jesus Christ came into this world as a man and died for our sins, he became our hope eternal. He became divine love itself. He became our Jehovah Shalom, our Prince of Peace. He became our Savior and our joy. And so the true meaning of Christmas is that Jesus Christ is our salvation, our hope, our love, our peace, our joy. And so as we near Christmas Day itself, I wonder if we might share some of the joy of our salvation with others. If, like little Logan on the screen, we might show a family member, a friend, or a stranger the kind of pure joy that only a child of God can have. For all of us that commute down I-75 from time to time, we know this world needs more joy. And I, um, I, so I, I hope that we will take to heart the attributes of Jesus Christ that we've discussed last week and this week. Hope, love, peace, and joy as we celebrate him this Christmas season. Would you pray with me as we close tonight? that God would bless this church during this Christmas season. Mighty God, I come before you tonight. Lord, we've honored you last Wednesday and, and tonight, God, because of who you are in our lives. Lord, you're not just God manifest in the flesh, but God, you've, you've given us eternal hope. You've showed us love that we don't deserve. God, you've given us peace that we desperately need in chaotic times. God, you've given me joy when I don't feel like there's anything to be joyful about. These are the things you mean to me, God. These are the things you've given to us. And mighty God, as we celebrate your birth this season, 
God, let us from the deepest parts of our heart, God, worship you for who you are in our lives and what you've promised to be, God. Not just because this is a holiday that everybody celebrates, but because this is a holiday that recognizes your special role in our lives. God, we want to worship you in everything that we do, God, and we want to, Lord, take full advantage of the hope, the love, the joy, the peace, God, that your word promises us. I thank you, Lord, for those promises. I thank you, Lord, that those promises will not fail us, that you will fulfill every one that you've made to us. And so as we leave tonight, God, and as we enter this Christmas season, I pray, Lord, that you touch every man and woman in this building tonight, mighty God, that the joy on their faces will be manifest, that everyone they come in contact with know that they've been with you, that they are a child of God, and there is a pureness of their joy that no one else has unless they're a child of God. God, you are so good to us, and I thank you, Lord, for blessing us and for allowing us to gather to worship you tonight. In your name we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We love you all. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Have a good night. We're going to go get some ice cream. I encourage you.